back to the killer kind. Welcome to February. Welcome to the month of love. I would love to know if you celebrate Valentine's Day. I love love personally, so I like to celebrate it. But if you usually don't, then I say this year, do it. Even if it's just for yourself, love yourself, you know? After last year, we could all use some self-love, am I right? (laughs) And speaking of love, let's move on and talk about today's case. Now, I did try to do an episode more related to Valentine's Day than this, but I couldn't resist covering this case, and you'll understand why once we get into it. Um, And I did not intend to put two Alabama cases back-to-back, but again, I couldn't resist. And technically, it's not an Alabama case, quote-unquote, but the killer is from Alabama, unfortunately. (laughs) This is a different case for us here on The Killer Kind. It actually involves a female serial killer. Yes, it's rare, luckily, and boy is this chick crazy and deeply, deeply disturbed. (laughs) It's a wild ride, and I'm going to go ahead and give a warning about today's episode. This, there is mention of dismemberment or dismembered body parts as I should say so think about that before starting the episode I will say I don't describe any actual dismemberment but there is evidence of that that I have to mention in the episode so keep that in mind but without further ado let's jump into the story of the black widow Sheila Labar Sheila was born on July 4th, 1958, and her maiden name was Sheila K. Bailey. Sheila was born in Alabama. In 1976, Sheila graduated from Fort Payne High School, and her nickname growing up was Firecracker. That's what her family and friends called her, and that nickname fit her personality to a T. She was very smart, book smart, and street smart. She was known to be very manipulative from a very young age. She was the type of person who knew how to get what she wanted for sure. She knew how to work the system, if you will, and she knew how to work any person to get what she wanted from them. And she seemed to always get what she wanted. So Sheila would go on to marry a few times. Her first husband was a man by the name of Ronnie Jennings. But that marriage only lasted a couple of years before Sheila realized that she wanted out of the relationship. However, when she told Ronnie that she wanted a divorce, he flat out refused (laughs) at first. He said divorce was out of the question. It wasn't going to happen. But... Eventually, he came to the conclusion that he wanted out of the marriage as well. So, the two did end up going their separate ways and ultimately divorcing. Now, cut to early 1980, Sheila's mental health started to take a nosedive. She ended up being admitted into a psychiatric facility after she attempted suicide. And it was there that she had an even more traumatic experience. She claimed that she was sexually assaulted by one of the employees at this facility, which could be even more of a trigger to how her life changed and the direction she took. But 
After leaving this facility, she would go on to marry once again. Sheila married a man by the name of John Baxter. Now, the two of them got married in 1981. However, much like her first marriage, that relationship didn't last very long. I'm not clear when these two got divorced exactly, but it's my understanding that the marriage only lasted a few years. So now we move on to 1987. Sheila moves to a town called Epping, New Hampshire. Epping is a fairly small community with a population of about 5,000 people or so, and it's a very quaint little town, not much to it. So why would she move to such a small, seemingly random town up north, all the way from Alabama? Well, there was a very particular reason why she moved there. Oddly enough, Sheila had responded to a personal ad from a man named Wilford Labar. Wilford was a well-known and well-liked member of his community. He was actually the local chiropractor in Epping. And being a chiropractor, he definitely made plenty of money. He owned one of the largest pieces of real estate in Epping. His house stood on over a 100-acre horse farm. So he seemingly, seemingly had it all. He had money, a great business, lots of land, and he was living a pretty great life. But it was clear that there was still one thing that Wilford was missing, and that was someone to share that life with, obviously. And that's when he put out the personal ad. And that's when Sheila steps into this poor, poor man's life. At the time these two got together, Sheila was 34 years younger than Wilford. But that didn't stop them from forming a a relationship. Wilford just wanted a companion and someone to show him affection. And that's what Sheila did. And it was working well for the both of them, it seemed. Friends of Wilford said that he really got swept off his feet by this woman. He was head over heels for her. She was young and attractive, and she actually seemed to like him. Regardless of any underlying issues or underlying reasons, she seemed to at least play the part of a loving partner. Now, Sheila definitely made a name for herself in Epping. Not to be surprised. She definitely stood out in this quiet little town. She actually made everyone call her Mrs. Labar, even though her and Wilford were not legally married. The two even told everyone they were married, even though they weren't actually. Um, Kind of odd, but love can make you do some crazy things, as some of us may know. (laughs) But anyways, they certainly acted married too. And by that I mean, yes, they seemed in love, but everything of his was hers. Not the other way around, of course, but isn't that how it goes anyways? (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Hopefully my husband isn't listening to this. Um... The two were together for a pretty long time. That was until Wilford passed away of a heart attack in the year 2000 at just 74 years old. Now, a lot of people were suspicious of Wilford's death because he seemed to be a pretty healthy guy. Um, So for him to abruptly pass away, it was odd to several people in his life. One thing to note here is that Wilford did have children of his own from previous relationships. However, when Wilford died, everything was inherited by Sheila. 
she tried to justify this to everyone by saying she was his common law wife, quote unquote, because the two never ended up legally getting married. Now, for those that may not know what a common law marriage is, it's actually, it's an actual law that says if you have lived with someone um, for at least three years prior to their death, and while you lived together, you and your partner thought of yourselves as married, you acted married, etc., then you qualify as a common law spouse once your partner dies. Therefore, you have the same rights as a legal spouse. I don't know if I explained that perfectly or not, but I hope you kind of get the idea. Basically, everything being inherited by Sheila is legal based on this common law marriage thing. Anyways, let's move on and talk about Sheila's demeanor after Wilford dies. You would think that she'd be very distraught, upset about her quote-unquote husband passing away. Well, that was just not the case. She really just seemed unbothered by the whole thing. Like, maybe it was an inconvenience to her, but she wasn't worried about it. (laughs) She was moving on. She continued on with her life like nothing had really happened. She actually ended up staying in New Hampshire and continued living in Wilford's home after his death. Now, not much is known about her time after after Wilford's death up until she meets a new man by the name of Kenneth County in 2006. He goes by Kenny, so that's what we'll, we'll call him here. Now, Kenny was actually just 24 years old when he met Sheila. And Sheila, however, was 48 years old at the time. So he was right about half her age. Which is weird for the both of them, but hey, you can't help who you love, right? Now, Sheila and Kenny's relationship was very physical in the beginning. The two would meet up, drink, hook up, and that was the extent of their relationship at first. But supposedly they did end up forming a more romantic relationship later on instead of just a sexual one. Now, it wasn't until after the two made their relationship official that Sheila's true colors came out. Remember when I said she was known to be very manipulative? Well, here's where this comes to light. So, Sheila made it her sole mission to completely isolate Kenny from his friends and family and to pretty much anyone that knew him. And she really did succeed in doing this. Shortly after the two got together, Kenny ended up moving into the house with Sheila, the one that Sheila and Wilford once shared. And this is when he really was separated from his family. Kenny would not take phone calls from his mom for weeks on end. And his mother, um, Carolyn Lodge, would later say that this was really unlike Kenny. Completely out of character for him. Now, Kenny's mom ended up filing a missing persons report for Kenny on February 24th, 2006, because she hadn't talked to him since he had met Sheila. She said that the last time she saw her son, he was leaving to go meet a woman he met through a phone dating service, and all she knew was that the woman's name started with an S. Now, because Epping was a small town, when she made the police report, the local police in Epping had a pretty good idea who Kenny's mom was referring to. 
Sergeant Sean Gallagher and Detective Richard Cody went straight to Sheila's house in order to conduct a welfare check. And when they got to the home, Kenny actually answered the door. He told them that he had been living with Sheila, that they are in a relationship and everything was fine. And that was that. So authorities reported back to Carolyn that he seemed fine and he said he was not there against his will or anything, which is from what I understand what Carolyn was insinuating. I'll throw in that Carolyn supposedly had police go check on him more than once after this first welfare check. I'm assuming because she still wasn't hearing from her son and just still had suspicions about this lady. There was one thing that police did learn about Kenny when talking to Carolyn. Like I said, Kenny was a 24-year-old man. Legally, he can do whatever he wants. However, Kenny had developmental issues. He had the IQ of a 12-year-old. So although he was technically an adult, in his brain, he was about 12. So that's kind of where the frustration started with Kenny's mom. She trusts her son, but she knew that this woman has to realize that he is vulnerable, and this was just a pretty big red flag to Carolyn. And speaking of red flags, not long after police went to Sheila's home to check on Kenny, the police officers that conducted the welfare check respond to a call about a suspicious person acting disruptively inside the Walmart in Epping. I'm quoting there. (laughs) This was on March 17th. Now, I'll say it's not clear if this person was Kenny or Sheila, but Sergeant Gallagher and Detective Cody get there and they see Kenneth County and Sheila Labar at the Walmart together. However, when they see Kenny... He's in one of those wheelchairs they provide at grocery stores. It doesn't appear to be the one that's like motorized. It looks like one that somebody had to physically push, but it has a basket attached for groceries and whatnot. Now, I say that because there's actually a picture of Kenny in this wheelchair at this Walmart on this day. I have no idea why the picture was taken. It's completely unclear, but it's helpful for a lot of reasons, and we'll get into that. Not only was he in a wheelchair, but his physical appearance was a little alarming, to say the least, because Kenny looked sick. His skin was an ashy, almost gray color, and he had bruises and cuts on his face and body. In court documents later released, it was reported that one of his hands were swollen and not functioning normally. It was shocking. To these officers, to say the least, since they just saw him standing in the doorway of this house looking completely healthy and normal. So police obviously went up to Kenny and was like, what's the deal? And he initially didn't even want to speak to them. He almost refused to talk to them. But supposedly he did tell them that his injuries were from a recent car accident, but that he was okay. And like I said, Sheila was there too, and she was definitely encouraging Kenny not to talk to the officers. So police just stepped back and watched the couple and monitored their interactions. Because this is obviously a very suspicious ordeal, these two in general. 
they actually ended up following the two out of the store as well. And they noticed that Kenny was leaned over on the shopping cart and that Sheila had to physically help Kenny get into the truck. Now let's back up. One other red flag, or what should have been a red flag, this case is is full of them, was that what the two were purchasing. You can actually see in the picture I was referring to earlier. I'll try to remember to include that picture in the Instagram post for the episode, but you can always Google it too. If you just Google Kenneth County, that picture is one of the first ones that you'll see. Anyways, in the picture, you can see two giant, like bright yellow, empty gas tanks sitting in the basket attached to Kenny's wheelchair. Police clearly thought that was a little strange, but they never mentioned it to anyone else, um, nor did they make a big deal out of it. Not really sure why they wouldn't think this was all a big deal, alarming, red flags, whatever. I mean, the missing persons report filed by this guy's mom, the wheelchair, the bruises and physical appearance just days after seeing him completely healthy and normal, and now the gas cans. Okay, this is where I would insert like alarm sounds if I could figure out how to do that in editing. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, sorry. Anyways, on March 22nd, Five days after this sketchy Walmart situation, police receive a call from Sheila Labar complaining that they had characterized her as a quote-unquote suspicious person in this report about the Walmart incident. So I'll back up. I assume that initial call that the police got to Walmart in the first place was about Kenny and Sheila, but there is zero information on what that call was about. Maybe because it looks like this guy was half dead and being shoveled around Walmart by some sketchy lady. That's my personal opinion, of course. But anyways, during Sheila's call to police, she made the statement that Kenny was no longer living with her and that he had left and gone back home with his family. Strangely enough, Kenny's mom actually spoke to Sheila and Sheila told her the same thing, that he had left to go back home. Carolyn knew her son had not made it home, so the next day after this random call to police by Sheila, Carolyn calls police to say that Kenny had not come home and he would have definitely contacted someone if he were on his own. She said due to his mental deficiencies, he could not be out on his own. Now, this is where things get a little interesting, okay? So, after getting this nervous call from Kenny's mom, police try to contact Sheila to find out where he is, but she did not answer. Then, at around 1 a.m. on March 24th, 2006, Sheila called Officer Gallagher. Yeah, hold on to your hats, people. So, Sheila calls the officer and first reiterates that Kenneth County is gone that he left her house and no longer lives with her. And then she proceeds to play a tape recording over the phone. Yeah. On this tape, Sheila can be heard identifying herself as a justice of the peace in New Hampshire and is questioning Kenny about raping children. Hey, I told you to hold on to your hats. This takes a little bit of a dark turn here. So... When she questions Kenny about this, he can barely be heard replying, quote-unquote, yes, in a very soft, muffled voice. 
At the end of the tape, Officer Gallagher heard a heaving sound and Sheila told him to stop faking that he was throwing up. Then on the tape, she said, quote unquote, Kenneth County is now faking that he's throwing up. The disturbing audio recording goes on with Sheila saying, stop faking that you fainted. And then Kenneth County is now faking that he fainted. Like, it's weird. While this tape was playing, the officer could hear what sounded like Kenny crying hysterically and saying, why, why, why? And then the tape ended. Wow. Yeah, take a breath. That hurts my heart and it gives me actual chills. Now, concerned for Kenny's safety, obviously, um, Gallagher and Cody went to Sheila's home at around 6 p.m., Not sure why it took from 1 a.m. to 6 p.m. Maybe there's some legality situation they had to take care of before then. I don't know. But nonetheless, they go to Sheila's house. One thing I found in a court document released on this case was that supposedly this isn't the first time police had spoke to Sheila. It was not the first time they had talked to Sheila regarding a domestic dispute. And where she tells them the person had left. I mean, again, with the red flags. And when police arrived, that person was actually at the house. So, in the past, this has basically happened before where she says, you know, or there's a call about some sort of domestic dispute. Oh, he's not even here. And then they get there and he's there and everything's fine. So, needless to say, she's crazy and this happened before. So, police are trying to kind of keep a calm, open mind here. Anyways, when the two officers arrive on the property, the gate is closed but not locked. There were no lights on in the house and all of Sheila's vehicles were parked in the yard. From outside the gate, Sergeant Gallagher saw a burnt mattress in the front yard. After seeing this, both officers Gallagher and Cody climbed through the gate and began walking towards the home. And I'm giving a trigger warning here. This is where it gets a little harder to hear. I always say that, like, hey, you're listening to a true crime podcast. I I shouldn't really need to give a trigger warning, but I know some of my audience is a little new to the true crime world, so just be prepared that this is going to get a little rough. So, the officers pass by the burnt mattress and a small burn pile. Using a flashlight to illuminate the pile, they saw what appeared to be a knife handle with a melted blade, tree limb clippers, a partially burnt chair, and a piece of bone. The bone was approximately three and a half inches long with a large piece of fleshy material attached. The officers walked to the door and knocked several times identifying themselves as Epping police officers. No one answered the door, however, so they returned to their car. Now, because Officer Gallagher saw a bone in a burn pile, he called an assistant county attorney who told him that he had sufficient evidence to conduct a well-being check concerning Kenneth County. After that phone call, the two decided to call for backup, so they called Officer Bradley Jarvis, who showed up at the house with his patrol rifle, and the three men walked back up to the home. 
Gallagher knocked on the door once again while the two other officers banged on the side of the house in windows. When no one responded again, they went back to the door and Officer Gallagher kicked the door open. Now, as soon as the door was kicked in, they heard somebody open the gate to the property. And it just so happened to be Sheila Labar. She told the officers that Kenny was not there. But when asked if they could go inside the house to check, Sheila invited them in and proceeded to give them a room-by-room tour of the house. Disturbingly, one of the officers reported that she seemed happy as she gave the tour. In the basement, the officers found a pair of sneakers that Sheila said belonged to Kenny. However, she told them they could not take them. Other than that, everything seemed to be okay. No sign of a struggle, nothing disturbed in the home from what they could tell. And after the searching through the home, Officer Cody asked Sheila about the bone they found in the burn pile. She said that she likes to keep pet rabbits, but when they die, she likes to cremate them. So that was her explanation for the bone. However, Officer Cody told her that the bone he saw was way too big to be a rabbit bone. And I kid you not, she said, and I'll quote, Well, it's either from a rabbit or a pedophile. Y'all, <laughs> I about fell out on the floor when I read that. But just like the crazy lady she is, when Officer Gallagher asked, Now, why would you say it was from a pedophile? She immediately denied she even said that. They asked if they could take the bone, but Sheila refused and asked them to leave, which they did. Now, after that whole interaction with Sheila, all three officers were pretty convinced that Sheila did something to Kenny. But on March 24th, Officer Gallagher obtained a warrant to search the exterior of the home. Both officers from the Epping Police Department and the New Hampshire State Police executed the search warrant on the morning of the 25th. They seized several items from the home, and they spoke to Sheila about why they were there, and she actually signed a consent to search form for the home. Now, one thing I didn't mention was that when police arrived on the property, they could see Sheila out in front of the yard messing with the burn pile they had seen the day before. She was running her hands all through it, moving stuff around, and just acting very weird. And that area was obviously investigated, and it was noted that the bone officers had seen the day before was no longer there. However, they were able to find bone fragments in that burn pile, and they retrieved those for DNA testing. Investigators went on to search the entire property, and if you'll remember, I mentioned earlier, this property was over 100 acres, 115 to be exact. So, it's a very large, intense search. Investigators even searched the septic tank for evidence. And they ended up finding a birth certificate in the septic tank. And that birth certificate belonged to a man named Michael Delage. At this point, the name Michael Delage had not come up to police. They had no idea who this guy was. So, that just opened a whole other can of worms for the investigators. Who was Michael Delage? Why was his birth certificate in the septic tank? They went from searching for one man to now having to search for two. 
And I'll go ahead and tell you that Michael DeLodge never had a missing persons report filed for him. He was estranged from his family and he was living in a homeless shelter, the last anyone knew. Supposedly, this was when Sheila met Michael. The two struck up a relationship after Wilford passed away. So that means this was after Wilford, but before Kenny. You know, try to keep up. <laughs> now, allegedly, Sheila took Michael in and offered him a place to stay if he would help work on the farm. Because, as I mentioned, this was supposedly a horse farm. Now, one other thing I haven't mentioned was that while Kenny told his mom he was going to meet this woman he met through a dating service, he actually told his roommate at the time that he was going to Epping to go work on a horse farm. So apparently this was Sheila's MO. She would hire these vulnerable young men to quote-unquote work on her farm, and then she would strike up a sexual relationship with them. Anyways, so after the search of the Labar property, word got out about investigators finding Michael DeLage's birth certificate. It didn't take long for witnesses to come forward and say that they saw Michael at Sheila's house. One witness even said she was driving by the property one day and saw Michael walking up and down the driveway. And he had a huge cut on his forehead that was bleeding profusely. She pulled over and asked if he was okay, and all he said was, Sheila, and he kept walking. As the calls were coming in and as police were waiting for the DNA test results to come back from the bone fragments found on the property, Sheila was supposed to be being watched by police. She was supposed to be under surveillance to make sure she didn't go anywhere or do anything more suspicious. However, somehow, Sheila ends up skipping town. She takes her rabbits. I'm assuming she has multiple, even though I can't find an exact number. She packs her bags, dyes her hair a red color. She had dark brown hair before this. And she leaves town and heads towards Massachusetts. Again, don't know how she manages to leave or escape, if you will, but she does. And while Sheila's on the run, police get the DNA test results back. And they do, in fact, match the DNA of Kenneth County. Now, Sheila is wanted for this poor man's murder. For some unknown reason, Sheila makes a stop at a pet store in Manchester. She goes in and asks if she can leave her rabbits with them for a couple of days. And the employee says yes, you know, no problem. And they even offer her to, a place to stay at their house. I mean, idiot, but whatever. Sheila agrees, and while at this employee's house, they are in the floor playing with the rabbits while the TV is on in the background. And what do you think comes on the TV? The story of Sheila comes up on the news. It was at this point that Sheila's cover was blown, and the employees of the pet store called the police. On April 2nd, 2006, Sheila Labar was arrested for the murder of Kenneth County. DNA was also taken from inside the home, and when those test results came back, it confirmed that Michael Delage was inside the home at some point. Now, neither Kenny nor Michael's bodies were ever found, even though it is insinuated that Kenny's body was burned in that burn pile. 
and based on all of the evidence here, it assumed it's assumed that Michael's body was likely destroyed in the same way. And because of this, Sheila is ultimately charged with murder of both Kenny and Michael. And luckily, she ends up admitting that she killed both men instead of trying to deny it. However, she did try to justify the killings by saying both men were pedophiles. And the reason she killed them was because it was her job to get rid of all pedophiles. Okay. Can't say that I like don't agree with that mindset, but you can't kill people. (laughs) I mean, I agree with getting pedophiles off the streets, but not murdering them. So, you know. Now, during her trial, the audio recording of Kenny was played for the jury. But come to find out, there was a video recording of Michael. It was the same kind of situation that they heard Kenny in. It was Sheila basically trying to force Michael to say he was a pedophile. It was clear he was being tortured or something causing him to be real sick and frail and just in a real weakened state like we know Kenny was. Another deeply disturbing statement came out during the trial as well, and that was by an ex-husband of Sheila's. He testified that Sheila actually asked him to kill Wilford Labar for her. He obviously said no, but that makes me and I'm sure everyone else think that maybe she killed him somehow as well. The official cause of death was heart attack, but could she have poisoned him or something like that to cause the heart attack? I guess we'll never know. After a five-week trial, Sheila was convicted on two counts of first-degree murder. She received two life sentences. In 2010, she tried to appeal her case, and that appeal was denied. She is currently serving her sentence at the Homestead Correctional Facility in Florida City, Florida. Now, during the intro of this episode, I mentioned that today's episode will be about a a female serial killer. Now, in order to be considered a serial killer, a person has to have killed three or more people. In this episode, I'll only mention two, and there's the possibility that Wilford could have been the third victim. However, authorities believe that there are many, many more victims of Sheila. And I hate to say, but that theory was confirmed when police went out to Sheila's home after the trial to clean everything out of the house and the property. And when they went to clean out the barn, they found a set of human toes in the barn. The toes were sent for DNA testing, and when the results came back, they did not match Michael or Kenny. So, they belonged to someone else entirely. So, that just proves that Sheila has at least one more victim under her belt, and police believe there are several more men that could have been victims of Sheila. When searching the home, they found evidence of her talking to multiple men in various chat rooms, and citizens of Epping said they saw many men at that house, and they knew several other men that Sheila had dated. So, who knows how many men she could have actually killed. It's hard to even think about the possibilities. But luckily, she is now behind bars and can't harm anyone else. (laughs) 
Y'all, I know, that was rough. (laughs) I hope you hung in there and made it to the end. If you did, I'd love to know. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. I'm sure you have many. (laughs) Typically, I like to type out an outline for the episode with all the facts so it's easy for me to record the episode. And after I typed everything out, I was itching to record. I told my husband I was pumped to record because I was dying to tell you guys about this psycho lady. Is it weird that I was pumped about it? Yeah, probably, but oh well. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please enjoy your Valentine's Day. Please don't go on a date with anyone new, just in case. (laughs) Either way, just stay safe out there, and I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Bye, guys.